Before we begin, we'd like to note that the views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or any of its components, including the U.S. Army, Navy, and Marine Corps, nor do they represent the views of any other agency of the U.S. government. listening to Combat Exclusion, where we explore the realities of the U.S. military's gender integration efforts. I'm Chandler, former Army officer and 2017 West Point grad. And I'm Johanna, an aspiring judge advocate and 2018 West Point grad. Thanks for joining us. Because of this, our Marines were not able to really contribute to their battalion's mission for those three to five days. It really disrupted operations and essentially took them out of the fight for you know, no legitimate reason other than to adhere to this policy and this superficial workaround. To this day, at least within the Marine Corps, there's a practice of segregating male and female recruits and officers for their basic training. And to me, this really starts Marines off on this bias that Marines who are women are second-class citizens. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode. Today, we have Colleen Farrell. Colleen is a former Marine officer, member of the early female engagement teams in, teams in Afghanistan, and was a named plaintiff in the lawsuit that led to the combat exclusion policies repeal. We're very happy to have her today. Welcome, Colleen. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're, we're excited to talk to you about your, your experience. And so let's just jump in with you and, and for you to tell us a little bit about yourself and what made you want to join the military? Um, how did you get your commission? And just give us your backstory. Sure. So um, I'm originally from New Jersey, just outside of Philadelphia. And I was in the Marine Corps from 2008 to 2012. I was always really interested in the history of the Marine Corps. Um, And I was an athlete through high school and college and just really loved to challenge myself physically. And I wanted to be able to continue that like physicality in my job after college. And that was the main reason I joined the Marine Corps. To me, it seemed like the hardest of all the services. And um, I went to Haverford College, which is just outside of Philadelphia. And it's actually a Quaker school and they didn't have ROTC for that reason. So after I graduated, I went down to Quantico, Virginia, and did 10 weeks of officer candidate school. And at the end of the 10 weeks, you're essentially commissioned as an officer in the Marine Corps. First of all, uh, the Marines, we would have to disagree with the part of France. (laughs) I I don't know, but my husband's a Marine, so he would probably be inclined to agree. But I mean, as an Army officer, I'll have to disagree. But I I don't I don't blame Brian, though. So (laughs) Um, but yeah, thank you for that background. So how long were you in the Marine Corps? Can you tell us just a general overview of your career, um, including how you got involved with the female engagement teams? Sure. So um, I was in the Marine Corps for a total of four years, and I was initially assigned the MOS 7208, which is an air support control officer. And at the time when I was selecting my MOS, um, you know, there were six combat related MOSs or job specialties that were not open to me, um, just based on the fact that I was a woman. And at the time, I honestly didn't even consider it. It didn't even occur to me. 
that it shouldn't be the case. And um, so, yeah, I selected one that was open to me, which was air support control officer. And that's essentially like you're controlling aircraft over the battlefield. And my first duty station was Camp Pendleton, California. So I went out there, I did my MOS school and essentially within the first few months of getting to my new duty station, the opportunity to join the female engagement team was posted. My operations executive officer, who was my friend, came up to me the day it was posted and said, hey, this new team is being formed. Have you heard of it? Are you interested? And it just sounded so incredible. I actually hadn't heard of it before that time. Um, and it just sounded like an opportunity to really be at the heart of the Marine Corps mission. And so in 2010, I volunteered for the female engagement team and was selected and then um, started training to deploy and then deployed later that year. Well, I mean, that's that's really cool that you had someone come up to you. I, I assume the uh, executive officer that you mentioned was a, was a man, but even if it wasn't, it sounds awesome that they, they recognized that you had the talent, that you were the right person for it and encouraged you to do it. So I think that's that's a pretty cool part of that story. Um, and so in your um, in your formative years, you mentioned that you there were roles that weren't available to you. So could you talk a little bit about what restrictions were placed on you and your um, Marines because the combat exclusion policy? And then in what ways did this restrict your efforts once you were on the um, female engagement teams? Yeah. So let me take it a little back and just kind of give you an overview of the purpose of the female engagement team. So this was a program that was designed to address a gap in the Marine Corps' capabilities. Um, basically, when we were operating in, you know, culturally restrictive environments such as Afghanistan and Iraq, with these really strict cultural customs about who can engage with women, the Marine Corps was not really set up to address this capability. Um, basically, male Marines could not engage with, talk to, work with Afghan women. And so when you're doing village stability operations or population-centric warfare, you're missing over half of the population um, to, yeah, you're basically missing over half of the population. So the, Marine, the female engagement team was designed to address this gap. And the mission was essentially to build trust with Afghans. Um, you know, that could mean in terms of going out, um, building up relationships, going out on patrol every single day, talking to folks, gathering information, gathering intelligence, um, doing civil development projects like rebuilding schools or um, hosting medical clinics. So that's essentially what the female engagement team was designed to do. And this was the first time that the Marine Corps was standing up a designated team to function in this role. Previously, um, the Marine Corps would select on an ad hoc basis, you know, one or two women Marines who were already deployed, you know, maybe they were a logistics officer um, and they had not been trained at all. And they, the Marine Corps would just say, hey, go out on this patrol. We need you to search women or we need you to talk to this this one Afghan woman. And so this was actually the first time the Marine Corps stand, stood up a designated team and actually conducted training. We had three months of training before we deployed. And then we actually had a team of 40 women to do this job. At the time, 
um, you know, women do this policy, we're not allowed to be in combat. And specifically, we were not allowed to be co-located with a direct ground combat unit. Um, and so essentially the female engagement team was attached to various infantry units. So I was a platoon commander for this team and I had teams of two and three Marines stationed with each infantry battalion out um, across the battle space in Afghanistan. And my teams would function essentially, you know, it's a team of two women Marines in an entire infantry battalion. So that's three to 400 male Marines um, to do this job. So um, because of the combat exclusion policy, as I mentioned, female Marines were not able to be quote unquote co-located with a direct ground combat unit. And one of the ways we circumvented this policy was we would have a, what was called a 45 day reset. And that meant that every 45 days, all of my Marines, wherever they were across the battle space would travel back to the main base, Camp Leatherneck and stay there for three to five days. Because of this, our Marines were not able to really contribute to their battalion's mission for those three to five days. It really disrupted operations and essentially took them out of the fight for you know, no legitimate reason other than to adhere to this policy and this superficial workaround. Additionally, this 45-day reset meant that we had to take convoys and or flights across really dangerous territories just to meet this policy. And it put my Marines in danger. It put the Marines they were traveling with in danger just for no unnecessary reason. Yeah. So in addition to kind of the experience that you had on the ground in putting your Marines in harm's way, what were the other impacts of the policy, including when you've redeployed um, in their long-term careers? Yeah. So right when we got back, because we were this team that had been, you know, cobbled together from all different types of spe specialties, there once we got back, we had no decompression period at all. Within three days, all of the Marines went back to their original commands. And these were commands that had not deployed, hadn't been through these combat experiences that they had. And with that, my Marines did not get the services that a typical unit will get when returning home, like whether that was physically or mentally. We didn't get any R&R, &R, which is you know rest and, a rest and recuperation period. I personally turned around and the next week was back out in the field for a month in the California desert at 29 Palms on a training exercise. Um, and none of my Marines really received like the medical care, the mental care that you get when you return home from su such a hard deployment. Additionally, it was really hard to ensure my Marines received combat action ribbons. Um, the majority of the Marines were awarded combat action ribbons, um, but it was really hard to get that paperwork through the bureaucracy because like on their on their paperwork and on their records, they weren't they didn't have combat MOSs. They had this really weird ad hoc team that not many people were aware of how it was functioning. And so it was really hard to make sure that they got the correct recognition for their service. 
And that really put them at a disadvantage for promotions and just making sure that they receive the correct recognition for their service. Yeah, I think it's really interesting how you highlight that the combat exclusion policy not only impacted these Marines personally and their ability to advance their career and and get the recognition that they deserve, but it also impacted the mission readiness. And I, I think that that's a really important aspect that you highlight in your story, that it made you less effective as a team and put you in more danger uh, because you had to adhere to this kind of arbitrary can't be assigned, have to be attached, and you have to do all these kinds of circumventing. So I think it's really important that you highlight that it, you know, it was the mission that was being impacted, not just the Marines personally. So um, fast forward, um, you've returned, and now you are being approached for this lawsuit. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you got involved with it? Um, You know, why you, why you felt passionate about joining it, and then kind of what your experience was with it? Sure. So just continuing a little bit with my story, once I got back from the first female engagement team, they were actually standing up a second female engagement team. And so I jumped on that as quickly as I could and started the training um, required to deploy with that team. About two weeks before we were set to deploy, um, they basically scrapped the program as we knew it. And they send over a much smaller contingent um, that was only going to be for a limited amount of time, nothing like the original deployment that was scheduled. And this was due to essentially the drawdown from Afghanistan at the time, which was in 2012. So I had essentially made the decision that because they were scrapping this program that I didn't want to continue to stay in the Marine Corps past my four-year commitment. And so I was about six months from getting out. And my commanding officer from the original female engagement team actually contacted me and asked if I was interested in joining the ACLU lawsuit to repeal the combat exclusion ban. I was still on active duty. And I really had to think through the implications of what that would mean. But my initial instinct was, yes, that I needed to do the right thing. You know, as an officer, it was my obligation to use my voice to get rid of this policy that was not only harming my Marines and the Marines I served with, but I truly felt that it was harming the Marine Corps' capability. You know, I had seen firsthand when I was deployed that our women Marines were a force multiplier, especially when used in the right context. Um, So it was a really challenging decision. Um, I wasn't sure what it would mean for my career or my life, but it was my obligation as a leader of Marines. I also knew a lot of Marines, both on my female engagement teams and elsewhere, who wanted to join the lawsuit but couldn't because they wanted to stay in and they knew what it would mean for their career, essentially that it was a career-ending decision. So I felt this extra sense of duty to speak up for those who could not. It's great that they had you to do that because, yes, obviously filing a lawsuit against the Secretary of Defense as an active duty member probably isn't ideal um, for for their careers. So it's great that they had you as an asset in that lawsuit. With that, like you said, it was challenging for people who are active duty to do it, and that's because obviously people had different reactions. So what kind of attitudes did you face toward you once people were aware that you were taking part in this? 
Yeah. So um, once I had joined, I actually, you know, had to notify my command and I went to speak with my XO and he literally said, you know, no, you cannot do this. Like I'm ordering you not to do this. And I had to say, you know, it's my constitutional right. Um, so I was getting out. I was kind of in that transition period, but the last few months where I was in, it was definitely really difficult. I felt like I had lost, you know, all the friends that I had. I felt like no one really understood why I was doing this and the importance and significance of it. And, you know, it was based on my personal experience. And so that was really challenging. I also had friends, you know, even other women in the Marine Corps who said things like, you know, repealing this is just going to increase the number of sexual assaults. Um, And so there was just really, I felt like no one really understood why I was making the decision. And for me, it felt like I was doing this because I love the Marine Corps. I wanted the Marine Corps to be better. I wanted it to be more open and inclusive of women. And I had really seen our effectiveness in this capability. But I felt like the overwhelming opinion of others was I was doing this because I I hated the Marine Corps and I wanted to, to ruin it. Um, so it was it was definitely really challenging. Um, and like I said, I got out and um, I lost a lot of friends that I had had built up over the four years I was in. I think it takes a, a lot of personal courage and, and, and integrity to do what you did. Um, I, it's definitely one of the bedrock um, values of the military. And I, I'm sure it's the same way for, for the army. I'm sure it's the same way for the Marine Corps. And I, and I think that it's, it's interesting that you say that because I know Chandler and I took on this project because we love the army and like, we're making these, we're having this conversation, not because we hate it and we want it to be bad, but because we want it to be better. And so I, I think that that's a really important message that you, you put out there is that it wasn't from a malicious, like I feel wronged, but it's a, Hey, we can be better. And like, this is how we're going to do it. So I think that's really powerful. So when you, so when you approached about the lawsuit and you became involved, what were the outcomes that they were trying to achieve with the lawsuit? What did, they, what were their goals? Um, and then kind of what was the experience like, you know, being part of it? Sure. Um, so this was my first um, time, you know, working with the ACLU, being in a lawsuit. I really didn't know what to expect. You know, our ultimate goal was to repeal the policy, you know, with no ex- um, exceptions. I think another goal was to really get our stories out there as well. And I served as an advocate for what my Marines experienced, what other women in combat had experienced, you know, women have been in these, in these roles in combat, specifically within the Marine Corps since the early 2000s. Um, And their stories just weren't out there. And I feel like, in my experience, most people didn't, most of the general American public didn't know, one, that women couldn't be in combat. That was, um, I think news to a lot of people like, wait, this policy still exists. It's 2010, what's going on? And then also the fact that there were women in combat in these roles um, serving in this capacity. And so a key aspect of the lawsuit was to get the stories out there, to repeal the policy, and then also to hold the services accountable, which you know was something that I think was really important 
um, as the lawsuit was ongoing, you know, when you're when you're in a lawsuit, you have to report to the judge you, what you're doing. And so the services had to report on um, how they were repealing the policy, what changes they were making. And then it became, you know, on the record that they were doing these changes. So it just really put the spotlight on the services to be held accountable. Yeah. And I think, like I said earlier, it's great that they had you in the right position at the right time to be able to seek that accountability. Um, With that, you mentioned something a little bit earlier about people's attitudes toward the repeal of this policy and how they brought up concerns of sexual harassment and assault. Um, And I know that there were obviously a number of other concerns, which I'm sure you're very familiar with, to include physical ability, women's actual role as a force multiplier, several other things, living facilities, logistically, things like that. How did you react to those concerns, not necessarily to the individual's or the individual concerns themselves, but more so what is your perspective on those concerns and how the military has handled them? Yeah, so I think one of the key aspects of the lawsuit and that is ongoing to this day is that at least within the Marine Corps, there's a practice of segregating male and female recruits and officers for their basic training. And to me, this really starts Marines off on this bias that women or Marines who are women are second-class citizens. They're incapable of competing on equal footing as male Marines and you know they need protection. And so it really starts at the foundational level of the Marine Corps. And what I had seen in combat was you know, I had we had battalions that were in literally the you know some of the toughest areas in Afghanistan, the most dangerous areas, um, specifically Sangin, which was in Helmand Province, was one of the worst areas in all of Afghanistan at the time, and the command, the battalion commanders who recognized the capability of these female Marines and integrated them into the units seamlessly, they they were our biggest advocates because they saw just how easy it could be done. You know, the actual force multiplier effect of adding this capability. And, you know, they came home from the deployment saying, you know, at first we weren't really sure how, how this would go, but after what we all experienced, we can definitely say they are our sisters in combat. Um, And so I feel like a really big component of specifically within the Marine Corps is just having training integrated, having all units and all training integrated down to the platoon level. At least when I was in the Marine Corps, um, my training was integrated at the company level. So during basic training, we had a platoon of women who trained alongside platoons of men. But training doesn't end when you like leave the classroom. The training goes back to your squad bays. It goes, you know, it's it's continuous 24-7. And so integrating at the platoon level, I think, is something that needs to happen. But it's something that is not still happening within the Marine Corps. Um, and that just does such a disservice to you know, all the 
all of the current Marines coming up through these programs? Yeah, I, I think that w- you know, when you're talking about that, it really struck me because we, you know, a lot of the naysayers um, who were against gender integration didn't serve with the women in these roles and didn't effectively um, integrate them. So some of the testimony that we've heard, and it, it's great to hear it from you, is that when male leaders integrated women seamlessly, they saw their benefit and they had no problem with it. And they recognized them as sister in arms and there was never any issue. But frequently the, the criticisms come from people who either didn't serve with them or they weren't integrated well, or the environment was not inclusive. So women could not be successful. And so then, then they have these negative perspectives. So I think that you highlighting that, you know, it can be done seamlessly. They can be multipliers, but leaders just have to take initiative to do that. I think that that's really, um, really great that you say that. And so my, my next question is about leadership. And so you, you mentioned some of the, you know, the pushback from your peers and some of your friends, but can you speak to your experiences as, as a woman in the Marine Corps? What were your leaders like? Um, were they supportive of you in your endeavors? And then beyond that, what kind of mentorship did you receive from them? Either if they're a woman or a man, but you know, what was that experience like in your professional development? Yeah. So, um, within the Marine Corps, you know, women Marines only make up, I think it's like, what, like 8% of the total Marine Corps. So I didn't really experience that many women, um, leaders in my career. There were, you know, few and far between. I was like, extremely fortunate that I was on a team of 40 women, which never, never, ever happens in the military. And so that was such a great opportunity, especially, you know, I joined the female engagement team as a second lieutenant and I was able to just, it was such a unique experience at a really pivotal time in my career when I was just soaking up everything and, you know, really focused on the basics of leadership. I was so fortunate um, to have Zoe Bedell as my commanding officer. And I also had an incredible executive officer for that team. And they were mentors to me then. They're, they still remain mentors to me now. And just as you know, Zoe Bedell was also another plaintiff on the lawsuit. Seeing her in that form, um, you know, exercise her leadership in that way was just really inspiring to me. Um, and we're, you know, still good friends and I still really look up to them, um, to this day. Yeah, that's amazing. And it's really, it's really cool to hear that Zoe was working alongside you and she brought you into this lawsuit. Um, so not only did she lead you in combat, she also helped to mentor and influence you outside of that to improve, hopefully the, the military and the Marines. Um, in another way, which is, I think, really, really cool. And I think it also goes to show the significance of female leadership because she understood your plight in a way that male leaders might have not been able to at the time because they hadn't been doing the same exact thing as you. Given that, so you talked a lot earlier about how you were able to firsthand witness women being a force multiplier through the use of female engagement teams. Can you talk a little bit about exactly how you were able to do that? Sure. So um, I think one of the key aspects, um, and I mentioned this a little bit earlier, was just the fact that, you know, male Marines were not able to talk to, engage with, access over 50% of the population. So in terms of just from a basic security standpoint, um, if you had a checkpoint set up, male Marines could not search the women coming through that. So if you wanted to hide something, you would 
you know, say it weapons or whatever, you would hide it uh, with an Afghan woman. It's the same with when you're searching compounds or houses. Um, male Marines were not able to go into the women's quarters. And so if you, again, if you wanted to hide something, you would put it in there. Um, and I think one of the biggest um, things that we saw that really affected how the commanders viewed us as force multipliers was accessing this other half of the population. Um, you know, women are really central to communities and they really get a sense of what's going on. And so being able to have Marines that are able to talk to and access um, those pieces of information is really key when you're doing, you know, population-centric warfare. I think it was also really key in terms of you know, having Afghans see us, oh, there's women on this team, they're here to help, they're not just here to, you know, come in and um, focus on security and, and, and that role. Having women on patrols just really opened up people's eyes. And I feel like it made them say like, oh, the Marines are here to help. Um, and with that, the female engagement teams focused a lot um, on civil development projects, like I said, like, you know, trying to rebuild girls schools, um, setting up medical clinics, doing, you know, midwife training programs, working with micro grants given to small businesses to really help provide legitimate income in the community. And so there was that whole component in addition to the fact that our female Marines were really able to access another level of information um, that male Marines were not able to access. And we had tremendous success in that regard. There were so many situations that I can remember where our Marines were able to, dis to discover where there were weapons caches or a critical piece of information that was missing from the intelligence picture. And that was because that they just trusted our teams more, I think because they were women. Yeah, and I know Joe has a follow-on question for you, but I just feel like that's important to highlight because I think it is one of the main criticisms that was, was put forth upon the repeal of the combat exclusion policy was why are we going to put all of this effort into gender integration? Like what is the added value? So I think it's important to highlight the firsthand account of the added value, especially in a world where the nature of warfare is changing and winning hearts and minds is a critical component to combat now. Um, so yeah, thank you so much for explaining that. Yeah, I'll, I'll be honest, I got like kind of shivers hearing about like the, just the work that y'all were doing. I mean, I think it's it's incredible that you were able to carve out a space for yourself, even amidst a lot of challenges that were, were placed on you for, for just being women, you, you guys overcame and you were able to achieve that success. So I think that just the value that women brought to the fight in that space, and then that is a lesson that the army should model and, and replay over and over and over in the, in the, in the conflicts to follow. I think one of the really interesting tidbits um, that we observed was in the more challenging, more dangerous battle spaces and districts, we saw that those commanders were way more willing to effectively use the female engagement teams than in the more safe areas. Um, I feel like in the more dangerous areas, you know, commanders were like, what, what, 
resources do we have available and let's use everything um, that we can. And that included the female engagement teams. Whereas in the more safer uh, battle spaces, commanders were more hesitant to send our Marines out on missions. They didn't really see the need. And so that was a really interesting dichotomy that we saw um, when we were deployed. Wow, I think that's it's really in, that's really interesting. I wouldn't have thought that. I would have thought that, you know, the the Marines in the more dangerous places are like, oh, we got to protect the women, or you know, that's because that's often the narrative. Like, oh, the men are going to feel this chivalrous thing about women, and they're not going to want to send them into combat. But what you're describing is that they recognized they have a really difficult problem set. I'm going to use all the tools at my disposal, and that includes my female engagement team. So I think that's a really awesome myth buster right there. Like, hey. <laughs> Like, hey, let's let's be honest. It's um, in combat. We're going to use the tools we have, and we're not going to protect our women or whatever it is. So, I appreciate you. I appreciate you highlighting that. I, I would not have thought that to be the case. So, myth busted. So, I am going to kind of transition now to talk a little bit about you know your decision to leave the Marine Corps, and then you know what were the decisions that you made. I think you described there you know, you weren't going to be able to do another female engagement team that kind of led to your decision to leave the, the Marine Corps. Could you just, just discuss a little bit what decisions may, went into that ultimate choice to leave the Marine Corps? Yeah, so I think the primary factor was essentially that the female engagement team program ended. Um, that meant that I had to return to my pre previous MOS, which was air support control officer. And that essentially requires sitting behind a desk nowhere close to the front line. And that just seemed really unappealing to me. You know, I was never going to be as close to the heart of the Marine Corps mission as I was on the female engagement team. And there was never going to be another opportunity in my career to do something like that. I had no sense that the policy was going to be repealed shortly after I left. I thought it was going to take significantly longer um, and so not being able to be on such an interesting, exciting mission that I was so passionate about was a huge factor in, in leaving the Marine Corps. I also think family played a really significant role in my decision. Uh, my husband was a Navy pilot and we like literally right after we met, um, after four months, I deployed. And then two weeks before I got back, he deployed. And so we didn't see each other for like well over a year, like almost a year and a half. And then also while I was in, he deployed again. And so it was really hard to just maintain a stable relationship when you're just constantly deploying back to back to back to back. And I knew I wanted to have a family at some point and so that was definitely a key factor in me deciding to leave. Um, he was a pilot and had a 10-year commitment. And I knew that that was just going to be really hard to settle down, start a family if we were both um, dual military. Yeah, I know Joe can certainly relate to that um, as another dual military member. Um, and that is something I've witnessed my, my peers struggle with as well. And something that we've heard is just the concept of family planning and in the ways in which it is to an extent unique to women and female service members. And But the relationships across the board, I think everyone struggles with the instability factor. Um, certainly something I think that they're targeting to improve for the sake of family life across the board. So something that 
you might not be as familiar with because you are no longer in the Marine Corps um, is, is the policies that they are currently making to target um, the improvement of gender integration and the improvement of retaining female service members. So I don't know the extent to which you're up to date on that, but what do you think that they're doing well and what do you think that they're doing poorly? You did talk a little bit about um, the gender segregated training in the Marine Corps, but is there anything in addition to that? Yeah, so in terms of what I think the military is doing well, I did see, um, you know, I follow um, the Service Women's Action Network pretty closely, and I see a lot of their updates on what's happening in, in the military. Um, and one thing I had seen recently was the Army's new Parenthood Pregnancy and Postpartum Directive, um, and that for folks not aware of that, it sounds like it expands, you know, postpartum operational and training deferments, um, you know, creates stabilization for fertility treatments. Um, there's like exemptions for expanding like physical fitness testing and the body composition program. And just seems like it creates more flexibility in terms of family planning. That was not something that we had when I was in. And so I think another really interesting piece of that is that policy, it sounds like comes from the grassroots level directly from soldiers' recommendations on how to make this better for families. And so I think that's just such a, an important part of when you're trying to um, retain women and, and men as well, that family planning is such a huge part of that. I think in terms of specifically, you know, what the Marine Corps can do better. As I mentioned earlier, I think the lawsuit still is ongoing. Um, and that's because in 2015, the Department of Defense ordered integration with like, quote, with no exceptions. And the Marine Corps was actually the only service to ask for an exception to integration. So that just kind of shows you where we were starting from. And right now there are a lot of exceptions to this rule that they're asking for. So the first was that, you know, having segregated training battalions, um, I believe in 2020, um, Congress actually mandated that the training battalions get integrated to a platoon level um, just because the Marine Corps was dragging its feet so much that they had to specifically create this policy to ensure that they did that. The second thing is there's still a leaders first policy. I think this is also in the army as well, but you can correct me if I'm wrong, that requires enlisted women to wait to enter combat battalions until there's two or more women leaders. And, you know, as we've talked about this just really deprives enlisted service women you know, the full range of their opportunities and the positions that are available. And it also really communicates that, you know, male service members and leaders don't really have any responsibility for the development and advancement of service women. So um, I think there are still exceptions that the Marine Corps is requesting to integration. Um, that really need to be addressed before we actually achieve the full repeal of the policy. I think another thing that I've seen um, in terms of what I think the Marine Corps could do better is just really addressing this first and foremost from a leadership perspective. Um, 
I think a couple, maybe in 2020 or 2021, you know, former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, who, you know, is a hero to all Marines, he made the comment that the jury's still out on women in combat. And this um, is really disappointing to hear because I do see him as a leader and as someone that I look up to. And it really just signified this lack of commitment by senior leadership to facilitate the integration. And so I think just, you know, as with everything in the military, it really starts um, at the leadership level. So you mentioned the leader's first policy, and that is a policy that we've talked about in the context of the Army. So I appreciate you bringing that out and highlighting it. I don't think the Army has... um, like, like separated, um, like basic trainings, like a, a decent, like we don't have that problem, but we do still have the conversation about the leaders first initiative. So, um, I know that they're changing in, they're working on it because they, they recognize that there are issues with it. And so I think you articulated it so perfectly. And that's that, um, it cuts out men from the equation. So it's like, you have no responsibility or that you aren't capable of leading women soldiers. I mean, I think that that to me is like, that should be a warning bell to men and be like, well, we don't think that you're capable. I think that's, that's kind of mean. <laughs> so I, I think that um, you, you articulated that really well by saying, Hey, like, you know, leaders first hurt, see, like be enlisted, but then it also hurts men who are part of the equation. So um, thank you for highlighting that. Um, and yeah, I just, I really appreciate hearing, you know, the feedback that you have and just the really nuanced perspective that you have about improving the military, especially the Marine Corps, but just the military writ large. So something we've, we want to ask you is uh, on that same trend, the same, same like thread there, um, what would you say is one practical way to increase accessions and retention of women in the military and then perhaps more specifically combat arms? Yeah, I think this goes a little bit back to what we were just discussing in terms of the family planning and creating just more f- flexible work arrangements. Um, I think one thing, and I think this this addresses both male and female retention, is having some type of rotational internship after your first tour in the civilian world. I feel like a lot of people at the end of their first tour, like, I, I want to get out, like, I never want to be in the military again. You know, I'm ready for something new. And then once they get out, you know, they really realize, hey, I there's a lot of aspects of being in the military that I really miss. Um, one thing I really miss is just like the camaraderie and the esprit de corps. You just don't really get that in working in the civilian world. And so I think having some type of rotational internship, maybe for one to two years, either working in the corporate sector or in the public sector, um, would just be really beneficial. And then having a way to seamlessly transition back to active duty. So just modernizing your career arrangements to provide like greater workforce agility. Um, I think that would really be key. I think some services potentially do have this. Like I think the Navy has a model of this, but it's just, it's so hard to actually do and implement um, due to the bureaucracy around it that it makes it almost impossible to easily do this. So I think that would that would have helped me. I think it would help others. Um, and again, not only women's retention, but also male retention as well. 
Yeah, it's funny. You're one of several high-speed women that we've interviewed that have said something similar, um, where they they talk about maybe just wanting to do something new more so than anything else and wanting to be challenged in a different way. Um, talking about how maybe being able to go back in at different points would be helpful to them as well. So I think it's really interesting that you said that. And then also earlier with your conversation about the Marine Corps, I thought it was interesting talking about the commitment of senior leaders because, I mean, we have seen the Marine Corps struggle arguably the most with integration, and that might be proportional to the size of the branch. But um, there's a severe lack of female representation in combat arms specifically in the Marine Corps. And I think something that the Army's seen on our side is that as we've had leaders that have shown a strong commitment to female service members, that policies have followed. So for example, the Sergeant Major of the Army worked to change the hair standards for female service members in the Army to modernize them and update them. And then soon after you start seeing improvements to paternity leave, improvements to maternity leave, postnatal exercise programs, things like that. So I think that is interesting that you highlighted that because we're kind of seeing the same on our side. But yeah, um, I think I think for the most part we've covered so much and you've been amazing and it's great to hear your experiences and also the things that you've recommended. You have such a, a great constructive critical lens towards this and I think that's really important. So Joe, do you have anything else that you'd like to ask or add or? No, I, I think we've covered a lot of the, the big things that we want to talk about today. So we just want to turn the mic over to you and if there's anything else you want to add or any closing comments you might not have gotten a chance to talk about earlier. Uh, the floor is yours. Yeah, I mean, I just wanted to thank both of you for this work. As I said earlier at the beginning, you know, telling the stories of female service members is so important. And I just really salute you and commend you for making a podcast and getting those stories out there. And I'm really looking forward to hearing, you know, all of the different guests that you have on the podcast, because it sounds like there's some really, really incredible women coming up. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much. Hey folks, we hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please rate and review, subscribe and save. We want to reach as many people as possible and these small things make a huge difference in expanding our audience. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Hey.